0: You would be turning in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 5 as we continue our journey through uh, Peter's first letter to the elect exiles who are scattered throughout uh, the, what is now modern-day Turkey. Uh, and so as we come to this, he's transitioning from discussing suffering proper to now talking about how they can encourage one another. And so he's going to talk about what some have referred to as the double helix of both the leadership of the church and the membership of the church. And so we will hear about both of those things this morning and how they are to actually serve to help us to suffer well. Because if you think about it, if you are going to have to endure suffering on one front, it's helpful if you don't have to deal with it on another front as well, right? And sometimes that's what is so, I think, wearing to us is that we we have things going on in multiple places that are difficult that are wearing on us, but maybe not a lot of encouragement and fresh water coming in. So the intent, uh, that Peter's intent this morning is to call for us, the church, to be consistently fresh water to one another because of the guarantee that if you're going to try to live for Christ, you will suffer in this world. And so it's critical that you have respite somewhere, right? And so, uh, but it's difficult because the church is made up of what? Robots? Robots? People, right, and how consistent are people? consistently inconsistent, that's how they're consistent at times, and that's all of us, by the way. Uh, you can catch us on any given day, and you're either going to get the best of what we have to offer, the worst of what we have to offer, or anything in between. And so this is why it requires that we do the best that we can do to try to, to deal with each other in grace and have a firm foundation uh, on, on which to stand so as to love each other well. So this morning... Um, in fact, it's, it's a little bit uncomfortable actually to be the leader and talk about leadership. I realize I probably should have gotten a guest preacher for this one uh, and let, let that person endure this because I do. I feel the weight of, quite honestly, my own failures at time times, plural at times, like that one time. <laughs> that, that right there is a dead giveaway, right? That was a very Freudian slip. <laughs> that one time I was wrong and everybody noticed. Uh, uh, and now the second time, um, uh, multiple times that, that, that we, we do, we just, we, we fail at times to, to lead and love well because of our own humanity. It's, it's, it's hard for me to remember, and, and I'm sure for you too, that my sanctification, the session sanctification, the diaconate's sanctification, the staff member's sanctification is not yet completed. We are not yet perfected either, just like you aren't. And that cuts both ways, right? And so, um, so it's a difficult thing because this first question uh, looms. Have you ever been hurt by poor leadership? Inside the church, outside the church, familial, wherever it may be, have you, ever, have you ever had to bear the stroke of just the results that come from bad leaders or bad leading? We all have more than likely. And for those of you who lead, which would be parents, any of you in your jobs, have you ever experienced or suffered the consequences of people unwilling to submit to your leadership? Or have you ever worked in a hostile work environment because other folks refused to submit to the leadership? Now, what does that do for your heart as far as wanting to be in and and about those places? Right? It, It makes it to where you don't want to be a part of those things. You may show up begrudgingly, hoping or, or, or praying for some sort of change, uh, but it doesn't, it doesn't bring fresh water into your soul to have to go to that day after day, week after week. This is why it's so important for the church to do everything she can to keep short accounts in her midst. That if there is something that we would be the first, because we ought, to practice Matthew 18. Remember, where does judgment begin? in the house of the Lord. And the reason it begins there is because we ought to know better than we do and do better than we do in many respects. And so it's critical that if, if we have something to deal with it because the church is supposed to be a sanctuary for any and all who would come here. Have you ever visited somewhere? It could be a family's house. It could be a church. It could be anything where you walk in and you're like, oh, something ain't right. And, and you, you, you want to like slowly be able to back out and not get tangled up into whatever mess they got going on. And the reality is, we don't hide this stuff near as good as we think. And it's cancerous. Satan loves to get it to grow, and he likes for it to grow much like leaven. Not, not, he don't want a big bang at first. He wants it to kind of permeate so that there's a spirit in the place that you can just feel something's not right. And so we've all endured this and we know that it is not the kind of place that any of us want to dwell. So Peter's going to call for us to ensure that there's at least one place in this broken and fallen world where you can get streams of fresh water in the living Christ. And that would be the church. Listen to what John Stott says. Now this is from Ephesians. You may be thinking... Well, that's not the letter we're looking at. Well, it was quoted in something else that I was reading, and it just really struck me. He says, One of our chief blind spots has been to overlook the central importance of the church. We tend to proclaim individual salvation without moving on to the saved community. Our message is more good news of a life than of a new society. This vision of renewed human community has stirred me deeply. At the same time, the realities of the lovelessness and sin in so many churches are enough to make one weep, for they dishonor Christ. Yet increasing numbers of church members are seeking the church's radical renewal. For the sake of the glory of God and evangelization of the world, nothing is more important than the church becoming God's new society as we step into this, we need to recognize that, that Peter is pivoting from the, the discussion of suffering, but it's still very much in view. It's very much the tone of what he's saying to the elders of the church. And so he's going to first speak to the elders. Now you may think that you can kind of check out here for a second, but you can't because shepherding is something that we actually all do. In fact, the scripture says that, that, that all of the men of the church should actually long to be an elder. Or have the qualifications of an elder. Every one of you who are parents, both mothers and fathers, you shepherd. For those of you who are married, you shepherd one another. Which is why Paul talks about mutual submission, actually, before he talks about wives submit to your husbands. Mutual submission first uh, in Ephesians 5. And so it's critical that we recognize this isn't just about those who have the title of leader. We all have a responsibility. In fact, all of you who are over the age of 18 have a responsibility to shepherd and participate in shepherding the next generation. Which is why it's important that our children's ministry do exactly that. And our youth ministry as well. So make sure that you don't just hear this as only to one set of, of, of people, a very narrow set of people. Uh, But it is very specific to the elders because if we don't do it first and we don't uh, uh, embody these things, what's the likelihood that you will? It's far less. Usually, the church, don't get scared now, what I'm about to say, takes on the DNA of the pastor. You sighed and I saw it. I don't blame you. Uh, but fortunately for you, uh, you in particular, all of you, uh, Christ is at work and, and none of us think we're finished products. All of us on the session very humbly recognize that we are, we are sinners who are saints becoming more like the image of Christ and seek to, uh, in humble reliance and prayer, to, to do that. We're not always going to get it right. and We're not always going to be perfect, which is actually why we read John 21. Because Peter is being restored. Why do you think Christ asked him three specific times, do you love me? What was he doing? He was restoring point by point the fact that Peter had denied him. He was making sure that Peter understood, you are thoroughly redeemed. And so as we step into this, let us hear the words of Peter from the Holy Spirit, and and may it affect our hearts this morning. So, I exhort the elders among you, as as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Now, why is the so there? So I exhort. He's saying, because of what your flock is going to endure day in and day out, they will eventually at some level suffer for their faith. I am exhorting you. To make sure that you support love and, and build them up. Build up the church, do not tear it down. And he says this in one of the few moments where Peter actually pulls back the curtain a little bit and gets vulnerable. If you've noticed, Peter hasn't said a lot about himself throughout this letter. He doesn't say a lot about himself in Second Peter. This is one of the few moments where he pulls back and says, listen, I am under this same charge. I have heard these words, feed the sheep. If you love Jesus, make sure they have everything they need to to live out the mission and work of Christ in this world, to be disciples who make disciples. That is your charge. You are not here to build buildings, although buildings can be part of that process. You are not here to make a name for yourselves. You are not here to be famous. In fact, did you notice what it said Peter would endure when he's old? He said, your arms will be stretched out, others will dress you, and you will go the way you don't want to go. Which, history says that he was crucified. Some say that he asked to be crucified upside down so it would not be mistaken that that he was Christ. I can't imagine what that would have endured and what that would have been like, and I don't want to know. But Peter said he was an eyewitness to the sufferings of Christ. Now, he had previously said he was an eyewitness to the resurrection, but here he talks about being an eyewitness to the suffering of Jesus. Now, part of his eyewitness account is if you remember, in his denying of Christ, who looked at him? Who saw him the whole time he was denying him? Christ did. And so in essence, can you imagine the heart of the Savior who knew that he was going to be struck and the sheep were going to be scattered? Do you not still think that it pained his heart to see one that he loved and invested in so much, so quickly and so easily to a servant girl who had no power or authority over him, so quickly and easily with cursing denied his Savior three times over? Even after he had warned him. Can you imagine the pain in the Savior's heart? And yet, it was for that shame that he was willing to endure because of the joy that was set before him. Because he knew that he would stand before Peter and say three times over, Do you love me, Peter? He knew that he had purchased him with what he was going to endure. And so he could endure it. Peter, who was an eyewitness to these sufferings, also knows that he will be a partaker in glory. So it is this confidence that allows Peter to continue to keep the truth before these people who are going to suffer, who, by the way, were not not any more excited about it than you are. See, we think, well, they they didn't have... have, uh, Playlists, they didn't have, you know, uh, gadgets, and they didn't have the iPhone. I mean, they didn't, I mean, suffering, what, what's really suffering? I mean, they were already suffering because they didn't have nothing. Well, they had life. And they, they also were just as materialistic as we are. They were just as consumed with themselves as we are. They were just as sexually immoral as we are. They were just as self-focused as we are. There's nothing new east of Eden. And so they were not excited about it either. And you've got to imagine that if if this was going to be your parting letter, you'd like to say something nicer so maybe it goes easier. But Peter can't do that because he knows all too well. He knows all too well what's coming and what will be the benefit. Because he knows he will partake in glory. That's going to be revealed when Christ returns. If you notice, Peter again and again and again points to the hope of the return. This will be very strong in 2 Peter, especially when we get to chapter 3. He points again and again make sure that you keep before you the hope of the return of Christ when all things will be made new, when everything will finally be revealed, when all that you have worked for will come to fruition, and no more will you cry, no more will you die, no more will you sorrow. And to that we, the people of God, should say, amen. And so he goes on to make sure that they hear, not only is he, does he have blood in this ditch as well, he calls them, shepherd the flock that is among you. <clears throat> now, we could gloss right over that and be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, 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 we can't gloss over that. It's very important that we recognize what he's saying here. He's saying, don't go looking For better sheep. Don't go thinking that God is not sovereign with who He has brought you, whether it's the child born to you, whether it's it's the circumstance in which you are born, whether it's uh, the people that choose to come because of the locale of this church. We should shepherd whomever the Lord brings being flexible and willing to love them in whatever way is necessary to make sure that they hear the gospel. Now, that's not to say that we compromise on the truths. That's not to say, well, then we need to do different songs or we need to do different things to, to, you know, placate certain things. No, what that means is we need to make sure that under every circumstance that the gospel is clear and that people have what they need in order to be able to hear the truth and beauty of the gospel. And so we don't get to choose the flock. God does. You shepherd whom he brings to you, recognizing his sovereignty and goodness, and that uh, story that I, I it, when, the first time I heard it, Mark Ross actually taught at the Reformation Worship Conference uh, a story on a guy named Shemamiah. Now, Any of you looking for good baby names, I don't think it's popular right now, but you could maybe kind of get it going. But Shememiah was this guy who the Lord appointed to throw rocks at David. And so everywhere David went, this guy cursed him and threw rocks at him, which is awesome. No, it's not, by the way. And so one of David's mighty men said, hey, let me cut that dead dog's head off. Don't throw rocks at the king. You do if he's appointed by the Lord. And David said, no, you can't touch him. Not now. His time will come. Shemammah does have his comeuppance. But it's not by David's hand. And so there are times when, uh, actually for, for leadership's sake, there's things that we need to endure because there's an area in which the Lord sees we need to grow. Whether it's our faith or it's our ability to love or our ability to endure, or our ability to remember that the single greatest gift is being in union with Christ, not your opinion, right? Not what someone else thinks of us. And so we have to shepherd the flock that is among us. Just as in the same way, the children that are born to you, you can't trade them out. You, 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 can't, you can't, the family that you're born into, you can't, you can't trade them out. The situations in which you work and live, you need to recognize the sovereignty of the Lord's placement and shepherd the flock that is among you. He goes on to say, exercising oversight, meaning the authority that you are given, not under compulsion. Now, what does that mean? So what he's, what he's going to do, is he's going to give them three things that they, the, the leaders of the church, the elders, need to mortify. You know what that means? That means to to do away with, to put to death. He's going to give them three things that they need to cultivate or vivify, make more vivid in their lives. And so the first thing he says right away is don't do this out of compulsion, which means out of some sense of duty, as if no one else in the world could do it. Well, no one else can be in charge. I guess I'll do it which is to say that the Lord is is somehow not as generous as he really is or as sovereign as he really is, which is why we will not lay hands on any man too quickly. Now, what does that mean? That means we're not going to make someone an elder quickly or a deacon quickly. That's why we have a process that they go through, training, interviewing. You, the congregation, get to weigh in. Now, we may not always agree in the end on certain things, but we do want to make sure that who we have in place is going to shepherd the flock not under compulsion with a sense of duty that that is not going to hold when times get hard, which, guess what? They always do. And so he tells them, don't do this under compulsion, but willingly. Willingly. Recognizing that you are called to a high calling like Christ your Savior. I can't help but think of the words in Matthew 20 when he says to him, Hey, the Gentiles lord this over them, but no, you don't do that. I came to be the servant of all, and so must you be. You must serve willingly, knowing that there is a great reward. And the great reward is not about you. It's about whether or not there's fruit born in their life for which all of heaven breaks out in a party when one lost sheep comes home. We should long for more parties in heaven and do so willingly to vivify within us as leaders the desire to love Christ's bride as the chief servants. And it goes on to say, but not for shameful gain, That means this is not a position of influence or networking, which, by the way, if you've spent any time in church in the South, oftentimes that's what leadership positions are. Who's the best business person and who can raise the most money for the church? Because we got buildings to build. Not whether or not are they humble. How many shipwrecks has the church had because there was a complete and utter lack of humility in her leadership? An unwillingness to weep and pray over sin. An unwillingness to say, I am, I was, I will be wrong. And we choose people based on worldly things, but it is not the worldly things that that God looks at, it's the heart. So we don't need people in leadership who lack humility but have great gifts and abilities in regards to money. Which happens to be the root of, all evil, as it turns out. So it's weird that we would pick that one as kind of a key ingredient. And so, so he's saying, you can't do this for gain. And also too, by the way, of those of you who are elders, how many of you would say, uh, <clears throat> "This has really helped increase your ego and status." Did you hear the laughter? I echo. If we do this in Christ's honor, it is not us who will be exalted. Remember the benediction we've read every single week. What does it say that, that we should do? Are we, to, are we to exalt ourselves? No, we are to endure suffering until such time as God chooses in his sovereignty to exalt us. It is not for us to seek to exalt or promote ourselves. And so it is not for shameful gain But eagerly. Now, again, for those of you who are elders, how easy is it to be eager about eldering in tough seasons? Which is the context of this letter. He's saying your church is going to go through it, they're going to be racked and, and broken by sin, both inside and outside. You must be eager to rush into the fight to shepherd the flock. To draw near to the hurting. To draw near to those who don't want to hear what you have to say. Who don't care what the Bible says. They know what they want to do. And yet you with great eagerness must draw near to them because of what we read in Psalm 23. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow. I fear not. Why? For the shepherd is with me. We represent the shepherd. It is our calling, our privilege to walk with people through the valley of the shadow. And their suffering, and the suffering that will come, guaranteed. And he gives a third. He says, not domineering over those in your charge. Now, this one one is, is difficult because sometimes people think if you're direct that you are domineering. It's not true by the way, now I know I'm, I'm, I'm playing dirty pool here because guess which one of those I am if not both of them, right? I am direct, if not domineering at times in my sin, forgive me. That one would probably be the one that would, I would struggle with personally the most. I don't see any shameful gain in any of this. I've been around ministry too long, it's a bone grinding mill. I don't, duty has never, I'm too rebellious to do anything out of duty. If I don't want to do it, guess what? I don't do it. But, but the thing that the Lord has given me as gift is also at times curse. And how it comes across or how it comes out of the pipe. Stronger than it should, oftentimes not taking, uh, taking care of tone, Right? Tone is, like Susan. I talk about this all the time, uh, tone means everything. So we have this, this joke sometimes when I'll, I'll apologize, I'm like, fine, I'm sorry. <laughs> Which I don't have to do very often, by the way, I just want you to know that. Uh, it, it's not the same thing as saying, sweetheart, I, I'm genuinely sorry. Those are two very different phenomena. The tone was the key piece. I did change some of the words, but really, it's tone. Tone can come across in all sorts of places, email, text. Uh, people read into it and assume things all the time, and it's difficult. So please hear me. Just because we, we are called to be direct, you don't want us to be abstract. That doesn't help you. How many of you, this is a heartening message, hey, I think we should meet, Period. <laughs> Everybody that I say, hey, let's grab lunch. What'd I do wrong? What's wrong? Oh my God, what's wrong? Nothing, I just, just want to grab lunch. Oh, no, 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 no. Trap set, forget it. Not getting me like that. Not catching me out like that. And so so it's important that we do be clear and that where we are direct, it is for the good and and not necessarily domineering. Domineering means that I am trying to lord something over you because of power. This is talking about the will to power. So how I handle most situations is here's my beginning presupposition, okay? I'm just letting you in on it real quick, a little pastoring 101, You're grown. You're going to do what you want to do anyway. So I don't have to try to domineer you. My calling, our calling as a session, is to offer you opportunities to glorify Christ. Now, some of you don't like that because you think we need need to be stronger on some things. Man, we need to kick doors in. We need to jack some people up. I'm for that in one measure but I don't think it actually gets us where we need to go in terms of mature saints. And some of you think we do that even when we kind of gently try to come in and offer you opportunity because anytime you're confronted, you think it's graceless. You think grace is allowing you to come to your own conclusions in the dark. No, it is not. And so we constantly live in this tension How to love each and every one of you well. Which, by the way, how many of you um, uh, are different than the person on the row next to you? All of you. All of you. So we have the privilege of shepherding a flock full of people of which, like a bunch of snowflakes, not in the pejorative millennial sense, snowflakes are different You all have different baggage. We don't get to choose your baggage. You have leadership baggage. You have church baggage. You have family baggage. You have societal baggage. You've got Facebook baggage. You've got MySpace baggage. Thanks be to God, it's gone. (laughs) Probably somewhere, I don't know. Uh, You've got stuff. Not to mention you're colliding with all of my baggage, all of Jonathan's baggage, all of Mark's baggage, all of Bill's baggage, which is a lot. He's older than the rest of us. And so so it is a miracle that anything good comes from any of this. It's a miracle that you all show up week in and week out. Don't miss that. That the Lord our God is good in even gathering us together whether you feel anything or not. And so we are not to domineer or use our power. We are to vivify and cultivate our own example. So the most critical question you could ever ask me if I ask you to lunch to know where I am is, hey, how's your prayer life, Cameron? (laughs) How's the Bible reading going? Because I'm like, "It's, it's stale and I'm angry. Put that on the calendar later. But what matters is, am I walking close to Jesus? And that's not that hard to figure out actually. You can hear it in my tone. You can hear it in the things that I speak about. You can see it in my countenance if you look. And sometimes, sometimes, just like you, I get a little bit lost, as do all the elders, which is why we need to lovingly and humbly support one another, be praying for us as leaders because this is a high calling of servitude. Those are two very dissonant words, high and service. And so we are called to vivify this, our example, so that we would look like the good shepherd, the chief shepherd, so that when he appears, we would receive this crown of glory. Well done, good and faithful servant. That is the crown of glory. There's no other shameful gain. The highest of all things that we could hear from the good shepherd himself. Well done, good and faithful servant. That is my longing. That should be the longing of all of us who lead. That should be the goal. That we could die a good death. That when we lay it down, we will have done all that we can do. I've been reading uh, through Francis Schaeffer's works, which I mentioned before, and I'm reading a book uh, written by a bunch of friends of his. And it's interesting that that when he was he had cancer, he had lymphoma, and uh, he was he was dying, and had just uh, he would he would go unconscious. They'd take him to the hospital something akin almost to a resurrection would occur. He, he would go on tour. All he would do is make it from the bed to the podium, do what he had to do and go back to bed. And he continued to serve all the way up until the day he died. And they said it was, it was electrifying those last days to be around him because when, when he would rise, it was clearly in the power of the Spirit. May that be true of all of us who lead, that, that, that we would not... Lose or go astray or think that retirement is even possible in the kingdom. We don't retire from being a Christian and we don't really retire from the callings that we have. Until the Lord says, well done, good and faithful servant. Listen to what Wayne Grudem says about this. He says, and I love how he talks about Peter. He says, Peter is an elder who has sinned, repented, and been restored and will share with Christ in glory. He can rightly exhort any elder in whose life there is sin, which, by the way, that's how many elders? All. Likewise, to repent and be restored before God's disciplinary refining fire reaches him. So the question I have for you, what are the key qualities of leaders that you respect both inside and outside the church? And the better question is, do those qualities ever show up in the person and work of Christ? See, sometimes we value a leader because they get things done. We would have fired Jeremiah a thousand times over. That joker didn't accomplish squat in this life. But getting beat up, and he bought some random field that never got developed, somewhere in Cobb County. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. It's not Cobb County. It's Anatoff, uh, which is a lot further west, as it turns out, or east, depending on which way you're going. Uh, and so, so, so we would have fired him. He had no, no fruit. We wouldn't let him speak at a single solitary conference with that resume. He was a man after God's own heart who suffered and did exactly this in great humility. I'd love it to see a conference full of nobodies. Probably wouldn't hear about it. But what are the key qualities? What is it you respect in a leader? And does it look anything like Christ? Now, he's going to turn from the leaders to the members of the church, and he's going to call us all to submit in humility to one another. Listen to what Peter says here. This is verse 5. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now, Peter now turns from the leaders. Notice he dealt with them first. You understand? It is critical that they... Exemplify these things first, and now he's turning to the congregation and saying, okay, if you have leaders who mortify and vivify those things, subject yourselves to them. He's not saying subject yourself to whoever's in leadership. In fact, that would be contra the whole sweep of Scripture. The Bereans, when they heard the teaching of the apostles, Listened well, went home, read the scriptures for themselves, confirmed what they heard, and came back and gave their approval. You are not called to subject yourselves to anything without having thought it through and and seen that it was biblical. It is a horrific mistake on your part to be uninformed in the doctrines of the church, uninformed in the Bible itself. It makes the whole thing weaker. I would love it if, if the challenges that we received and we do from time to time were always, they're biblical in nature, that they were a longing for, a, a, a greater mission within this world. But so often, what, what, what we fight about is none of those things or fight for. And so please hear these words When it says younger, what he's implying is you need to mature in the faith. You need to grow up into, to be able to display the same qualities and characteristics as the elders who are over you. Think about how Paul says, imitate me. So here Peter is saying something very similar to what's said in Hebrews 13. Where the author of Hebrews exhorts the people, remember, the elders have charge over your souls. They will answer for you. So make sure that you submit yourselves in a way that recognizes that fact and doesn't cause them greater suffering. Because again, we don't need to battle more fronts than we already have. And so, is R2-D2 in here all of a sudden? No, it's okay. (laughs) Uh, And so, I just thought Star Wars had broke out, and I was looking to the east. um, East, where, yeah. Uh, and And so, what we're called to do is be strong from bottom to top and top to bottom. If you aren't growing as disciples, there is nothing we can do to make this church do anything of any value. The most dangerous thing of all is that we would gather around the cult of personality. That we would say, hey, you need to come to this church so you can hear this person speak. Whomever that person may be, we've got options. Instead of, you need to be a part of this society of people so that you can be loved in the name of God and you can use your gifts and participate in something that has eternal value. One of the areas we need to, to, to make the turn in, um, uh, the, my four-year anniversary here is come and gone, uh, and, and uh, I knew it would take about 10 years for things to really change, to, to, like, to incarnate. And, and three of the three to five years was going to be a language issue, like just inculcating the language of the church. And then it would take the next three to five years for you to take ownership. We're in year four, and we're starting to feel a little bit of the stress strain of that. And what we long for is that you, you would take ownership of this church, that this would be your church, not Cameron's church that you attend or the, the, the PCA's church that you attend or the Sessions church that you attend or the only uh, church in Kennesaw that, that halfway does anything okay, like it's resignation for you. Um, we, we want you to be passionate about and flourish in worship here and grow in using your gifts. Because some of you, as it turns out, is going to, they're going to, you're going to outlive us on a number of levels. And so it's important that this be your church. That what you're submitting to uh, is something that you believe in. Something that you witness the person and work of Christ in. Something that you can be part of and use your gifts in so that God would be glorified. And notice how he turns from saying you need to submit to say clothe yourselves, all of you, all of you with humility. And then he quotes Proverbs 3, uh, 3.34 and it goes back to something Josh said. The antithesis to faith is pride and arrogance. And he says it. God opposes who? The proud. Now how many of you would say I have no issue with pride whatsoever. People should probably write books and make documentaries about me. But I don't want them to because that would be pride. We all struggle with this and so it is important and this is why he says it is an act on your part. It is an action. It doesn't happen passively. You don't wake up humble. You don't stumble into humility. So to follow up on uh, one of my issues, the road rage thing. uh, It's really been a good few weeks. And the reason it's been a good few weeks is because one of the things I'm trying to do is every time I get in the car, remember the gift that that car is. It's an Impala, right? It's a real gift. And the Lord has blessed me with it. And I don't want to dishonor him by being a fool. And it ain't worth, nothing is accomplished out there. I'm telling you. It just doesn't do anything. And so the Lord has been so gracious, and it's actually bled over into other areas of my life. I am, I am noticing a, a just just a difference in my own heart, in my own orientation, my own language, my own perspective. That's simple. I'm not saying that's what you got to go and do, but it, I, what I'm telling you is that wasn't going to happen accidentally. It wasn't, I'm a, I wasn't going to wake up and no longer have issues with justice on the roadways. It's something that had to be actively put on every time I get in the car, I'm at risk. There's other places that this is true for us as well. For some of you, it's the space between work and home. It may even be the space between the front door and the foyer. For some of you, it may be the shared space that you have with your spouse or your children. For some of you, it may be any number of places. It could be work. And so we have to clothe our... It could be Church. Some of you, maybe, maybe, and I'm not accusing you of this. I don't know if anybody in this category, so don't go panicking. But some of you, make sure you come in late so I can't catch you at the front door. Really, it's real talk. Possibly, and is that the way to come to church, to then sit seething? Oh, Matt's not preaching this week. Oh, Robbie's not preaching this week. Oh, we don't have a guest speaker. Is that cultivating something? It is, actually. Thorns and thistles that'll destroy you. Not me and it'll weaken the church. And so we have to clothe ourselves with humility. So one of the questions that I try to ask myself on a regular basis in any given situation that I think has become very helpful is, is there any possibility that I'm wrong? And what's the answer to the question 100% of the time? Yes. Yes. Why? I'm limited, I'm fallible, I am not yet perfected. I don't care what the topic is. There is a possibility that I'm wrong, and so are you. Some of you have had to endure this question. You come to me with something, a strong statement, I'm like, all right, what, before we go any further, is there any possibility you're wrong? Because if you tell me no, the con- just hear me, the conversation is now over. There's nothing for us to talk about. Because if you think you're 100% right, I've now heard you, there's nothing more to say. You understand? And so, and that's fair. And you should, same with me, flip the table, turn the tables. Say, is there any possibility you're wrong, Mr. Brown. Yes, 100% of the time. May we in humility approach each other with a greater desire, instead of being right, that we would greatly desire for Reconciliation. That what we would desire is that others could hear Christ and not in any way, shape, nor form have our lack of love for one another keep those things, keep others from hearing. Alan Jacobs, uh, in a book on uh, a theology or hermeneutic of reading, says that one of the besetting sins of the Reformation is that... uh, um, We became more concerned for a time, and we still hold on to this, with being right and winning the argument than than we are about um, a lot of other things that are far more biblical. And we have to, that's the plank we have to just deal with and process in our own eye, right? For some of us being right, and listen, I am numbered among you. It drives me absolutely insane to be misinterpreted. And not have the ability to kind of defend myself, Francis Schaefer again, in one of his letters that he wrote, said that you know that's you, you've got to be the stable force you've got to you 've got to let that be dealt with in time and not try to do it yourself. Man, I hate that, but it 's true, and so in humility, sometimes it's not about making sure that we 're right or making sure that we are understood, uh, but instead making sure that God is glorified and Christ is exalted. That doesn't mean that we don't hash things out, by the way. Our door is always open. If there's something going on and you're wondering why we're doing what we're doing, come talk to us. Find out what's the reasoning as to why you guys are approaching this and make sure you're not mishearing something because a lot of times, if you're getting it secondhand, guess what? It's corrupted no matter who it's from. Maybe it's not intentional, but always make sure. With humility, we are to love one another, all of us, because we know that God opposes the proud. Listen to what Paul Gardner says about this. He says, just as people will deliberately pick out the clothes they are going to wear, some of you more deliberately than others, So Christians, all of you, should deliberately walk out to face the world and to face each other clothed in humility. What he's saying is we should be very deliberate about seeking. And you may say, well, and humility is one of those tough ones, right? The harder you try to be humble, the less humble you actually are. But So what does it mean to actually try to be humble? It means to pray in humility that the Spirit would clothe you with this because you can't do it yourself. That's the first act of humility, is the recognition that you can't display the humility of Christ in your own strength. You're too corrupt. We all are. So we we need to, in going into any situation, pray that the Holy Spirit who walks with us, who dwells within us, who is with us under all circumstances, available to us, and longs to do this work, that he would do it in us. He goes on to say, it should be the mark of Christian brothers and sisters that they behave well with each other. Now, he's British, so you've got to hear that in a British accent. We don't go saying, "You need to, Wes, you need to behave well. That just sounds like work stuff, but it, from a Brit, it's a different meaning, right? A little bit. So he says, we have to behave well, and I'm not going to fake the British accent uh, with each other, putting the other first and listening to and engaging with the other in a humble rather than an arrogant way. Peter gives a decisive reason for doing this, and he draws it from Proverbs 334. God is opposed to the proud and gives grace to the humble. So do you submit, I mean, do you struggle with submitting to authority? Rhetorical question, leave your hands down. All of you struggle at some level. Every single one of you. Which is awesome. But but is the struggle related to a past or present experience? Is it some baggage that you bring to the table? And have you dealt with it? Are you dealing with it? Is it the characteristics of the present leadership? Maybe there's a way in which we say and do certain things that just rubs you the wrong way. Now, what's the likelihood that I'm going to suddenly change and become soft and cuddly and just smile all the time? Don't shake your head so fast. Give me, just like, give it a second. Like, maybe, maybe, mm mm-mm. I'm just not, but, but I'm, I'm trying to grow in, in ways in which I better love you, the flock, that the Lord has granted to me. Because there's some cultural differences between us, I ain't from around here. And it's, is it maybe even an internal struggle for you? Maybe it's you. But the truth of the matter is it's all three, isn't it? At some level, it's the combination of all of those things colliding together. And it really is all six, because once you interact with someone else, you've got their three, your three, and there's something It's probably like logarithmic or something. It's not even a pure six. It's like a nine or a 27. And what does humility look like in those you respect? Who would you describe as Humble? And why? You got to be careful here because would you describe Jesus as humble when he was turning over the table? Now, wait a minute. Let me back up. Before he turned over the tables, you know, he like took a while to fashion a bullwhip. Any of you ever fashioned a bullwhip? Anybody? It doesn't, it takes a little bit. And you also remember that he'd been going to that synagogue for years. He doesn't just walk in there one day and like, what in the world? He'd been going there for years and seeing this den of thieves, this place that should have been a house of prayer, becoming what it was becoming. And when the right time came, he in great humility because of the cost to himself turned over those tables and drove out all the money changers in an act of grand humility. Would we describe the prophets as humble when they are confronting us? about our lack of love for the poor or our love for the material. Is that humble? To, to, to no longer be popular and know what you're going to say and what you're going to do with that information. You're going to charge them with it and not God from whose mouth it came. That too is humility. It is not a humble thing. To try to love other people in the way that is best for you. It is not a humble thing to not take into account how it may affect them if we love them a certain way. It's not humble to keep your mouth closed when people are perishing. So be careful that you don't let how the world has defined defined humility be your definition. But if you have seen humility of a biblical kind, a Christ-like kind in others, do you recognize any of those qualities in yourself? And if you don't, it's not an act of humility to not see them, by the way. You should be able to recognize Christ's likeness and transformation and change in yourself. What you can't do is think you are, you are better because of it. No, if anything, it is for you to give away and suffer more. It is the talent you are given. To whom much is given, much is required. So, what do we learn from 1 Peter 5 1 through 5? It, He teaches us that we are called to display the attributes of Christ and how we humbly shepherd those entrusted to us, that which we mortify and that which we vivify. And that should be an ongoing and active process for all of us who are in leadership, all of us who parent, all of us who have anybody else in our charge. And then we are also called to submit to one another in humility for the church's protection for the life of the world. Because if the church becomes a place of... Of, of dystopia, of, of infighting. Nobody is interested in being anything a part of that. Nobody is looking for, hey, what's the most ingrown, just, uh, just angry uh, church that I could go and find try to worship at? That is just not, that's not like the list that you wake up with on Sunday morning. And so this is a protective thing This matters. It's why Christ said the world will know who you are by the love that you have for one another. How we treat each other on Sundays. How we treat each other throughout the week. How we speak of each other when not present. Edmund Clowney says this, and I think this this is crucial for us to remember, this double helix. Christian submission to authority, however, is never servile. So, what he's saying is what I said earlier. It is not that you are to submit without uh, doing it uh, based on scriptural things. Leadership should evidence Christ and be biblical. You don't know that if you aren't in the scriptures and walking with Christ yourself. So, it's never meant to be servile. And Christian exercise of authority is never to be authoritarian in the will to power sense, in the domineering sense. We do have authority because I will answer for each and every one of your souls. I am growing to see that that is not a light matter to be taken. Which is why there are times where I have to say hard things to you. Especially if you veer from the biblical path. He goes on to say, Our awareness of the Lord gives dignity to our obedience and humility to our rule. In both, we serve him. See, all of these things that have been described are all things that Christ did. So in submitting, you are being Christ-like. Remember, he submitted to whom? The will of the Father. Because he trusted that God was good and who he said he was and that his promises would be true. He submitted to even worldly authority because of what it would accomplish. His death, our life. He did what he did not out of compulsion or domineering or for any sort of gain that was shameful. He did it exactly as we are called to do it as elders. So none of this is beyond the pale of who Christ is which is good news, by the way, because if it was, you couldn't accomplish it. So you may have heard some of these things, man, this sounds really hard. No, actually, actually, this actually is possible. It's possible because of what Christ has done and what he's given to us in terms of the fullness of the word of God as well as the Holy Spirit. He is interceding for us. There's a lot going on in the spiritual realm to ensure that this, his bride, Would at some day, when he returns, deliver her talents as they were given to her, hopefully grown and not buried, so that we could all hear, Well done, good and faithful servants. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Christ, the shepherd who is the good shepherd, who is the chief shepherd, who is with us in the valley of the shadow who is with us in our sorrow, who is with us in our suffering, who is with us in our joy, who is with us in our struggle. God, we give you thanks for the church and all that you have given to her in terms of its leadership. We recognize with with great trembling that much has been done wrong in your name, and yet you continue to call us to serve in your name. Let us not take your name in vain. Help us, the elders of this church, be Christ-like. To mortify and vivify as you have called us to do. Let those who have been called to be members and regular attenders here, may may they grow in their knowledge of the Scripture so that they could call for us to be even more biblical than we currently are. So that when they submit, they submit willingly, knowing that they are submitting to men who love you and love them. And I pray that we would actually put on humility and deal with each other in love in such a way that the world would know who you are. That you would bear fruit in our midst, the fruit of redemption and salvation, not just maturity, but that we would see people come to you through these doors, through this way, through our relationships. We pray that you would entrust so great a deposit to us in Christ's name, amen.